0: I'd like to start this morning with a a question asking you to think back just a little bit. Where were you on January 2nd, 2022? It's not a day of immense national significance, so it it is forgivable if you can't remember. But for the record, I stood right here in this pulpit and delivered the very first sermon in our series in Genesis. Genesis. And now after 53 sermons covering 18 months with several breaks along the way, we finally come to the last one. And it's really been a wonderful journey for me personally. I I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, But I want to just share just a bit personally as we kind of come to the end. It's kind of closing a chapter on a a really unique season in the life of our church, Uh, and it's been a great joy for me. You know, I I already had a pretty deep love for the book of Genesis before we stepped into this series. I'd completed entire courses in higher education about the book uh, and yet found myself growing in a deeper love for God through this series than I ever did through a class on it. One of the things I've come to appreciate the most is just this rich character development throughout the book. So often we want to identify ourselves. I want to identify myself with the heroes in the book. And more often what we're seeing is, no, I'm more like the rebel in the garden who thinks I know better than God, who thinks God is holding out the good stuff. And boy, am I mistaken, and aren't we all? And I find myself more often being like the people of Babel, who are more concerned with making my own name great than making God's name great. It wasn't just the rich character development. I I found myself coming to love and appreciate really difficult passages in ways I didn't expect. I was looking at the genealogies that would reveal God's heart for world evangelism in ways that kind of blew my mind. And I wasn't exactly sure what we would do with the sordid tales of Genesis 34 and 38. And yet somehow they revealed hope from God for this world, even in the midst of the darkness and the brokenness. But I think the thing that was maybe the most striking of all of it has been the beauty of the gospel being declared in seed form, in acorn form throughout the book of Genesis in ways that would take root in the rest of scriptures and blossom and just see a glorious oak tree that is the God of the universe intending to redeem his people. You think back to Genesis 3 and that that first proclamation of gospel hope that God would send a Messiah, someone to destroy Satan, a snake crusher that would make all things right. You think of that astonishing picture in Genesis 15, where God makes covenant with Abraham. They sit and the animals are torn apart. And as they make covenant, God says, I promise that if you don't keep up your end of the deal, Abraham, I'll take the curses on you so that you can still receive all the blessings. We look ahead to Jesus, who would one day on Mount Calvary take all the curses of our disobedience so we could receive all the blessings of his perfect life. There's the glorious picture of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah, where they go up and God miraculously provides a sacrificial lamb. You look ahead to the one day on the same mountain where Jesus would be offered as the ultimate sacrificial lamb on our behalf. Like, I can't help but think of Genesis 28 and Jacob's crazy dream, where he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder from heaven. And who would have known that Jesus would show up in John 1 and say, yes, the angels don't just ascend and descend on the ladder. I am the ladder, and I'm the only way to God. And I've come because you could never work your way to me, and I will take you to God. Oh, it's just been so, so rich. And so I hope as we conclude the series, you walk out with a clear picture that these are not isolated moral stories. They're not Aesop's fables telling you how to be a better person. No, they all exist in a glorious concert harmony declaring who God is and what he's done and how he intends to save his people. I hope you you can walk out and Think, as the psalmist did in Psalm 111 in verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And I hope that there's been great delight for you in studying his immense works. I know there has been for me. And so this week, we come to the the very, very end, and we're concluding a two-part series titled Hope in Farewells. Last week, we saw four reminders about who God is that give us hope, In our journey. And this week, it's a little bit different. Rather than seeing four reminders of who God is, we'll see three responses to who God is. You see, a core truth of the Christian life is this who God is always demands a response from us. It always demands a response. It starts with who He is, doesn't start with us but who he is does demand a response. And so that's why in a two-part sermon we see last week four reminders of who he is, leading this week into three responses of how we should respond to him. Now the, the structure of this passage, the way the passage is organized, gives us a lot of clues about what it means and how it's to be understood and what responses we ought to look at. This week's passage is laid out in what's called a chiasm. That's maybe a $2.50 term that you're not necessarily familiar with, but it simply is this. A chiasm is when there are words or ideas that are repeated in reverse order to emphasize each point. So if you think about this, uh, here's an example. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Right? That, that's, that's a chiasm. Words or ideas, they're repeated and then in reverse order to emphasize the point. This whole chapter of chapter 50 in the end of 49 is actually laid out to do that. And so I want to I show you kind of in outline form what that looks like so that you can, you can see the things I'm saying to you are not just what Justin felt like saying this week. No, I'm telling you what God has inspired in his word, what he has literally given to us. And all the authority is in his word, not in mine. So if, if we can click to the next slide here, you start to see the bookends are last words. There's last words of Jacob at the end of 49, and then last words of Joseph at the end of 50. And then the next part of that chiasm that works towards the middle are two requests of Pharaoh. They ask for Pharaoh's favor, that they can go out and take Jacob's bones back to where he wants to be buried. And then the brothers come requesting Joseph's favor. Hey, don't be angry at us. Dad is dead. Please be kind to us. Don't take us out to the woodshed, basically. And then at the middle of the chiasm, the highest point is this funeral procession. I'm not going to linger really long on this, but I want you to see there's a parallelism there where it starts last words, favor, funeral, favor, last words, that chiasm that gives the structure of how we're to understand this. And so our three points this morning, three responses will be based on this. This kind of idea here. And so the first one will be from the procession, and then the second response will be from these requests of favor, and then the third response will be from the last words, basically, is what that structure looks like. All right, that gives you a kind of a a rough look at how the passage is arranged. What are the three responses then to God that we're supposed to see as the book of Genesis concludes? How do we respond to who God is? Here's the first response response number one. Look for God's ultimate deliverance. Look for his ultimate deliverance. Now you'll recall from just a moment ago, this is the middle part of the chiasm. It is the high point, the most important part of the chiasm. And so the first audience would have certainly seen deliverance from Egypt, that they could take Jacob's bones out of Egypt, go bury them where they're supposed to be, and there's this huge funeral procession that follows. If you look back at Genesis 50, let's read starting in verse 7. I hope you have got your copy of God's Word open and we'll follow along. Here's what Genesis 50, starting in verse 7, says. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So they're seeing this opportunity to leave Egypt for a while here but embedded in them leaving Egypt for Jacob's funeral is a foreshadowing of the greatest event in the entire Old Testament, the greatest event in all of Israel's history, the Exodus that was to come in the next book over. It's like they're waving smelling salts under our nose so you see, do you smell what's about to come next? Do you see the foreshadowing in here? The Israelites in Egypt wanting to leave for a religious ceremony Pharaoh lets them go, sending them with blessings. They go out in a loud procession. You can start to hear what's about to come next. And certainly there are differences in what occurs in the actual Exodus, as opposed to what happens here in Genesis 50, but the echoes are unmistakably present. And then this kind of deliverance, this salvation, is at the nuclear core of the Bible, See, we've got to understand that the Bible is primarily about God and what he's done for you, not primarily about you and what you're supposed to do for God. Now that's a different way of thinking and it's a different way of reading the Bible. But when you wrap your mind around that, then we should expect to see subcurrents of this deliverance all over the place. When you know that the Bible's mostly about God and what he's done for you, certainly before it's about you and what you must do for him. Now imagine you're on vacation at the beach, and you turn on the news, and it says, hey, tomorrow morning at sunrise, we're expecting to see unprecedented amounts of dolphins in the water. Well, what are you going to do the next morning? You're going to get up early, you're going to get down to the beach, see if you can get out to the sandbar, and get the best look at those dolphins, because you know you're going to be there. It's the same way with reading the Bible, When you know that the story of redemption, God's plan to save his people, is baked onto every single page, you read it with different eyes. You go looking for it. Because the the guys on the news, especially the weathermen, they're wrong all the time about what's coming next, but God is never wrong about what's going to be in his word. And So this passage is building like a majestic symphony, growing into a crescendo to highlight God's ultimate deliverance. It's foreshadowing these things. And of course, the, the Exodus follows and it gives the details, but there's other clues throughout the Bible saying, yes, this is pointing us ahead to a better deliverance. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Joseph was speaking of the Exodus when he made these comments. On the screen, you see Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's what Joseph says. Look, look, the exodus is coming. I'm going to make mention of that as we talk about Jacob's funeral. And then I'll give direction about my bones. Of course, for them, they're seeing deliverance from Egypt. But Jesus, when he would come, would bring a sort of second exodus, a greater exodus. Yes, he as a young child would go down to Egypt, but would then come out of Egypt and bring deliverance, not from Pharaoh, but deliverance from sin. Where immediately upon trusting him as your savior, you recognize I've been delivered from the penalty of sin. Hell is not in my future. The wrath of God is not being reserved for me because Jesus took it. And he's in the process of delivering me from the power of sin in my life. Whereas I fix my eyes on him as I abide in Christ, the power of sin slowly loses its grip on me. And one day I look forward to his ultimate deliverance from the very presence of sin where there will be pure joy at the feet of Jesus, worshiping forevermore. That's the deliverance he brings. Here's the thing, this deliverance, it's not just from sin for us, it's penalty power and presence. It's not just from Egypt for the Israelites, it's actually to something better. It's being delivered to a better place. And the broader context sort of makes this point uh, track with this for just a second. The end of Genesis, Joseph dies. He's buried in Egypt, right? That was the very last, it's kind of a, almost a morbid ending to the end of Genesis. And they put him in a coffin in Egypt. The end. Right? You, you heard Don read that. If, if we zoom ahead just a bit, in Exodus 13, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, Moses picks up Joseph's bones and they start to go. And we're not told exactly what happens right away, but you just kind of keep reading the story, and you get to the very end, not of Exodus, not of Leviticus, not of Numbers, not of Deuteronomy, but you get to the end of Joshua chapter 24, and the Israelites have moved their way into the promised land of Canaan, and they've kind of pushed the other country, the other uh, enemies out. And in Joshua 24, 32, you read that Joseph's bones are now buried in Canaan, in the promised land. Yes, delivered from Egypt, but to something much better, to the, the promised land. So we'll, we'll say more about this in the third point, but we need to just touch on it right here at the beginning to recognize they were going somewhere better. It's as if Jacob's death and Joseph's bones remind us that this life is like a highway going to a final destination. That's what they recognize. Egypt is not my final destination. I want to get out of there but I'm going somewhere better. You say, yeah, I'm recognized. I live in a world right now that's affected, cursed by sin, and I want to get out of it. Amen? But I want to go somewhere better, too. There's a final destination I have in view. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, in Romania on a missions trip. You're going all through these different airports, and there's lots of things you're trying to figure out. What's the next gate we're on? What's the terminal? What's the bus you have to ride? Where's their Chick-fil-A? All these sorts of things in the airport. You're asking yourself, oh no, we're traveling on Sunday. What am I supposed to do now? (laughs) But the one thing you never lose sight of is what is my final destination? You keep your eyes fixed on that. You get to those little monitors and you're trying to see what's that destination. Where's Indianapolis here? And you recognize sometimes you're in this like amazing airport And you just want to walk around and look at it. It's like, this is incredible. And other times you're in a real dump of an airport. Like, how soon can I get out of here? But it doesn't matter how great the airport is or how dumpy the airport is, you want to get to your final destination. It's a metaphor for life. There's some times where things seem to be going amazing. You're in the Taj Mahal of airports. It's just cruising, and it's beautiful, and they've got all the restaurants you want. And there's other parts where it just feels really dumpy. Like, man, how soon can I get out of this airport? But it doesn't, it does matter. But the most important thing is that you keep an eye on your final destination. You look for God's ultimate deliverance. If you're not a Christian this morning, It's so important that you recognize this fact. You might be on this earth for 70, 80 years, but there's an eternal afterlife to follow. There is a final destination that you're headed to. And the most important decision you could ever make in your life is to recognize that apart from Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, I will not have that final destination in heaven with him. Because I've turned against God. I've said, God, I don't need you. Friend, your destination is apart from God in a real place called hell. I want to urge you today, make July 2nd, 2023, an amazing day in your life where you say, for the very first time, I saw God's ultimate deliverance and I turned to Jesus. And now my final destination has been changed. And I have a hope of heaven forever. That's the very first response you're supposed to see from this passage here. Look for God's ultimate deliverance. But there's more. There's a second one. To marvel at God's relentless grace. Marvel at his relentless grace. Now these two sections of the chiasm, remember, this is the request for Pharaoh's favor and the request for brother Joseph's favor. There's a parallelism there. You might say they're asking for grace. Something they don't necessarily deserve, but they want Pharaoh to be gracious and Joseph to be gracious. Of course, with with Pharaoh, it's Be gracious with these burial proceedings. We want to leave. We want your blessings. We want your help as we go. And the brothers are asking, Joseph, please be kind to us. We've been so cruel to you. We've been so wicked to you. And now that Jacob, our father, is dead, we're scared maybe that you were just being kind to us for his sake, and you actually hold a lot of resentment and a lot of nastiness in your heart towards us. Please be kind to us. We pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 50. Here's what we read in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Jacob dies. The brothers think, boy, we're really in trouble here. Joseph is going to bring the hammer on us. Did you notice they sent a delegation ahead? They didn't even want to go themselves right away. Let me send somebody else to remind Joseph he's supposed to be kind good to have a little buffer in the way there if he freaks out we don't want to be right at the edge let's give him time to calm down a little bit here and they deliver a message from our father be kind did Jacob ever say that to them well we actually don't know like maybe they just made it up like oh how do we get an extra measure of grace put it on the lips of dad let's make it up and give it to him Or maybe Jacob really did say that. There's all kinds of conversations that happen in history that aren't recorded in the Bible, so we don't exactly know. But the the, the point of the the whole thing here is to recognize they doubted Joseph's forgiveness. They doubted the warmth of his compassion, and it broke his heart. Guys, you think I'm actually not compassionate towards you? You think I haven't forgiven you? Remember at this point, Joseph is a pointer to Jesus. We don't identify ourselves with Joseph here. We identify ourselves with the brothers. And so there are seven episodes in Joseph's life where we read of him crying or weeping. Interestingly, we never find him weeping over his own circumstances, although he certainly had reason for that. But this final episode of weeping is because his brothers didn't believe the depth of compassion that he had for them. They are truly forgiven, but the guilt and the shame of their sin is just crushing, even after decades and decades passing since this cruelty towards Joseph happened. This is where we often find ourselves, isn't it? Doubting the compassion of Jesus, the beloved son who so freely forgives us. I wonder if this morning that describes you. You've got something maybe decades in the past like these brothers did. You find yourself gripped by guilt and by shame. Can God really forgive that thing? Or maybe he could forgive it, but has he really? Does he hold out some anger against me? Next time I mess up, he's ready to strike quickly. Friend, that's not the heart of Jesus. wasn't the heart of Joseph. He loves to show compassion. It's deeper than you'll ever know. Forgiveness is fuller and freer than you can even comprehend. I also wonder if maybe you're here and it's not like a singular event, a really big bad thing in your history that you're thinking of. Or rather, it's just that you've been struggling with the same sin for a long period of time and you wonder if God is just starting to get irritated with you. Like maybe he's not just all out angry at you, but he's just kind of disappointed. Like, dude, haven't you figured it out by now? Haven't you moved on from that? Like, why do you still erupt at your kids over the smallest things? Like, haven't you realized that, like, you're foolish and they're foolish because they're like you and, like, I have compassion on all of you? Like, why are you still getting mad? You think God looks at you that way? Or you look out at your, your neighbors your coworkers, and your and. You can strike up a conversation about, you know, 4th of July plans or what the Pacers are doing, what the weather's going to be, but as soon as it comes to anything spiritual, even inviting the kids to VBS, you clam up like it's a first time asking a girl out on a date. You say, like, isn't God looking down at me saying, like, haven't you developed any boldness yet? Why are you so cowardly to mention even the slightest thing about church? I could go on, I could list all kinds of ways where we feel like we should have grown more. Friend, I want you to recognize God's not looking down at you from heaven saying, wow, how did I get stuck with them on my team? We we sort of think, we think, well, God's got these like all-star missionaries and I'm kind of the bench warmer who's the tag along hoping maybe if we get ahead by enough points, I can get into the game. He's saying no, 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 a thousand times no. In fact, God says, my specialty, my greatest work happens where there are the most major flaws. Where you see the greatest weakness is where I love to intervene. That's precisely where I'm going to work. In fact, Jesus is saying is, you wonder these things up at him. He says, oh, I knew all of your flaws. I knew all the ways that your growth would be slow. In fact, I knew all of those when I chose to lay down my life for you. I didn't pick you because you were that impressive. No, I chose you because I chose to set my love on you. And I want you to see the depth of my love. So you're saying my mess doesn't slow down his grace. It doesn't impede his grace doesn't make him slow to give grace. And I'm saying, no, friend, not at all. Because when you recognize that the Bible is mostly about God and what he's done for you, it's not primarily about you and what you do for him, then you recognize there's an endless supply of grace available that continually flows. It's a river that never stops. And just like Joseph would look at his brothers and say, guys, you're, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're welcome, give me a hug and let's eat a feast together. So Jesus is looking down and saying, you are forgiven, you are loved, you're now my brothers and let's eat a feast together. And what we see here in acorn form, in seed form, in the book of Genesis, you see all over the rest of the Bible. Let me give you two quick examples. One is from from the prophets, the book of Hosea. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Hosea tells about a man who's commanded to marry a prostitute. It's a picture of God's love for us, although we continue to leave him over and over and over for other lovers. And you get to the end of the book, and the idea is like, man, maybe the husband is getting a little fed up with this. Like, really? Again? And we're tempted to think that God's looking at us in the same way. Like, really? Really? Again, in Hosea eleven eight, 8, it's this glorious truth of the grace of God that will never be stopped. And it says this, my compassion grows warm and tender. My compassion grows warm and tender when I see your weakness, when I see your flaws. It's building on this in Genesis saying his compassion will never end. And in precisely the circumstance where we think that God wanna move on and be done with us, he says, No, come, you are fully loved, forgiven, and accepted if you've placed your trust in me. And then we move ahead to the New Testament in John 15. And John is, or Jesus rather, is with his disciples. And he's with the ones that he knows would forget about him, that would deny him, that would curse his name. He knows that's coming up in their future, in the very near future. And he looks at them, and here's what he says. He says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. You don't just serve me. You are my friend. Guys, that's astonishing. He looks at you. If you've trusted in him, It's not servant, friend. The relationship has fundamentally changed where he's welcoming you open arms into his, his own self. It, it, last weekend, we had the, the, the heavy winds, right? Tornadoes coming through. Tornadoes come. They wreak havoc on a place. They rip up trees, buildings, cars, throw them all over the place. And then it's a, a major work to get it all cleaned up, right? I wonder if sometimes we see our lives a bit like a tornado. Like I'm the tornado. I rip things up. I cause havoc wherever I go. And the only way I can get back to God is if I clean up all my mess and then I pay for all the damages and then maybe we can be friends again. He says, no, 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 no. All I ask is that you come to me because I leave the 99 for the one. And I'm the father who knows the prodigal is in a distant country who's run and run and run away, and I'm looking eagerly for him. And the moment I see him at all taking a step to come to me, the father runs to the prodigal, throws his arms around him, says, let's have a feast. No, you don't have to pick up the mess from the tornado and pay for all the damages. I've got it all covered. Just come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11. all who labor, who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, your life will be utterly transformed when you begin to get a, a grasp, even in the slightest sense of the relentless grace of God that never slows down, never grows cold, never shrinks, is always pursuing. You say you are forgiven and loved and welcomed as a friend. Marvel at his relentless grace in your life. That's the second response that we're supposed to see in this passage. Here's the third final response we're supposed to see. Long for his people in his place. So we start by looking for his ultimate deliverance. We marvel at his relentless grace and we long for his people in his place. This last leg of the chiasm shows both Jacob and Joseph longing to be in Canaan, in the promised land. So if you remember that initial scene, it was the the last words of Jacob and the last words of Joseph sort of at the bottom. They're saying, I want to get back to the promised land. That's where I want to get to. We see this being repeated over and over and over. So let me give you just a couple, look at your copy of God's word. And what you're going to see repeated over and over is this phrase, the land of Canaan. They want to get to the land of Canaan. So forty-nine thirty, the cave is in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan. 50 verse 5, you must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Drop down to 50 verse 13. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as a burial property from Ephron the Hethite. Ephron the Hethite, Hethite, the Hethites were the owners of that land, and so the phrase the Hethites is three times in the passage, in addition to four times saying land of Canaan. So there's no confusion about where we're talking about. Like, you talk about land around this area, some of you know it by the neighborhood, some of you know it by the county road, and some of you that have been in agriculture for a while, you know it based on the farmer who owned it 35 years ago. Oh, that's Farmer Johnson's plot. That's basically what he's saying, like, however you want to talk about this land, we're going to be clear, this is the place I'm supposed to go. We are trying to get back there. And then you drop down to 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land where he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. So I take a minute there, and you're thinking, Justin, why do you keep saying the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan? What's the actual significance for my life? I get it was a big deal for them. It was clearly at the front of their minds. But the land of Canaan was the promised land. And you'll recall... Throughout this series, we've talked about getting to the promised land, being God's kingdom, where God's people live in God's place under God's rule. That's what we're supposed to long for, for God's people to live in God's place under God's rule. And for them, they certainly had to be thinking, this is a return to Eden, the Garden of Eden, the perfect place where we rightfully submit to God in a garden paradise and he rules over everything and it's glorious that we recognize him as the king. And isn't that an interesting, just literary piece of uh, beauty here to see that the book of Genesis begins in the garden and it ends with them longing to return to the garden. That's where we're supposed to be. They recognize it. And for generations, they've been remembering this and longing to get there and wisely planning to get there. Abraham would buy the burial plot in faith. Isaac and Jacob are buried there in faith. Joseph, in faith, requires that his brothers would take an oath to take his bones there and bury him. Joseph's descendants, in faith, carry his bones around for hundreds of years. I mean, just imagine that one for a little while. Three, four, 500 years later, we're getting ready to load up, not for vacation, but for a wilderness journey. What do you got? I got the suitcase. What do you got? I got the tent. What do you got? The portable Weber grill. What do you got? I got Joseph's bones. Because getting his bones there matters. It's steps of faith, saying, I don't see exactly why this matters right now, but I'm taking God at his word, and I'm taking steps of faith based on what he's told me to do, even though I realize I don't have the whole picture right now. It's what we see God's people doing over and over and over. The fact of the matter is this. They knew they were strangers and exiles and sojourners, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. They had somewhere better they were going. And they knew that God had provided miraculously in Egypt. Had he not, he gave them the best land, and he elevated their brother to be second in command of the whole place where they had grown and their flocks had flourished and their their, uh, families had grown immensely. Like God had provided in miraculous ways for them. But it still wasn't home. And I wonder for us as Americans this 4th of July weekend, if we wouldn't take time to remember that our God has provided for us in miraculous ways in America and to celebrate it and be grateful for it while also recognizing this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. You can look out on the news and see various images from the last month where it looks like the sky is falling and the world is coming to an end. And on the same 30-day cycle, you could look out on the same news stations, and it could look like there is major hope for a real turnaround, and things could get going in a good direction. So you try and read the tea leaves, and you can see hope or despair. And certainly the Israelites could relate to that in their day, could they not? Some days they look out, and they see their brothers being enslaved and beaten by wicked Pharaoh. And other days they look out and see their brother being elevated to second in command. Sometimes it looks more hopeful. Sometimes it doesn't. But friends, pastorally, one of my fears here is that we long for a red wave more than we long for Jesus' return. And I recognize that for me to say that, some of you are going to get really nervous. It feels un-American when I say things like that. And there's others of you that get really excited when I say things like that because it sounds like a return to gospel centrality to you. We can hear that in different ways. So it's important that we recognize this. There are righteous ways to love your country while recognizing your citizenship is in heaven. There are righteous ways to seek the good of your city while also fixing your eyes on the true eternal city that is your home. And some of us need to focus more on seeking the good of the city and civic engagement and advocating for good laws and policies and voting. And others of us need to focus more on remembering, this is not my home. I am not an ultimate citizen here. It would be good for all of us to think back on Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, where he says, the crown of righteousness is laid up for all those who have loved his appearing. He says the crown of righteousness is not laid up for those who merely knew of his appearing. It's not laid up for those who merely anticipated his appearing. It's laid up for those who loved his appearing. So maybe it's helpful to step back for a moment and just ask a couple of questions. This weekend, or any weekend, are you quicker to speak about the last thing you heard from your favorite candidate, or to speak about what you heard from the Lord as you were reading his word? Be helpful to ask, are you more energized by someone leaving office than you are by Jesus riding on the clouds? Yes, we celebrate the freedoms in America to worship and evangelize, but do you take those freedoms for granted and fail to ever evangelize yourself? It's helpful to ask, am I more concerned, am I more concerned about Christians voting in November or evangelizing today? See, these are not mutual, mutually exclusive kinds of things where to value one means you must deny the other. I, I get that. But to rightly order our loves does matter. To be a Christian is many things, but one thing that it must be is to be someone who longs for heaven, to long for God's people in God's place under God's rule, to say as the, as the psalmist did, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O oh God. We're intended to see here the right response is to long for God's people in God's place and under God's rule. So as, as we wrap up, start to think about landing the plane on the book of Genesis here. There's, there's a lot to say. After 18 months, there's a lot I'd like to say. It's been a long and winding and interesting road. But despite all the unexpected things we might have seen, the final response this morning is actually quite simple. And I like simple. I hope you do too. Very simple. What do you do? What's the response? One, look for God's ultimate deliverance. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. He's the only Savior of the world, the only hope of heaven, the only way to have your sins forgiven. Look for his ultimate deliverance, and you find it in the person of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to die to pay for your sins. If you'll ask him to forgive you, he will be your Savior today. I'd love to talk to you if you've got questions about that. But second, you don't just look for his ultimate deliverance, you marvel at his relentless grace. Because the only path to true and lasting and secure joy in this life. Don't lose sight of it. And third, long, yes, long, ache for God's people to live in God's place under his perfect rule. Because there is a glorious afterlife that is coming. It is secure for all of God's redeemed, for those who have cried out for salvation. Let's pray.